just a really special, really awesome occasion. So thank you very much for inviting me. I wonder if you'll turn with me, uh, if you have a Bible, switch it on or open it up to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, I'm going to start reading from verse 21 down to 35. And then we'll get stuck in. This is what it says. Luke chapter 2, 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. And when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout, And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and a sign to be spoken that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Wonder if you have a family photo album at home And albums have all these sorts of treasured memories or, as my mum and dad like to do, opportunities to embarrass me and embarrass your kids. And many folks in here, I'm sure you'll have folders, you'll have books, you'll have things recorded on phones, iPads, just like tonight, you know, another another moment on the road sitting at home. Every baby photo, school photo, birthday and uh, everything in between. If you walked into my old room uh, at home, You've seen this whole selection of photos like plastered over the over the back wall and some of them were kind of older memories some are more recent all photos of family and friends of hannah and i and every photo on my wall i suppose you call it an album of sorts if you walked into that room with me and you started pointing to each photograph i'd be able to point to you oh that was when i was with them in this place and oh yes this is this time we went here and this we went there every photo had something to it it was intentional it was real and I could just give you a walking tour through all of that and just like a family photo album I've jumped right into the middle of it but Luke begins the first two chapters of his gospel these 10 short stories or 10 snapshots if you want to call it of Jesus and they break down into two halves five stories that come before the birth of Jesus and five stories that come uh, after that, after his birth, his infancy, and then one the very, very special one we meet at the teenage Jesus in the, in the temple. And Luke is writing this gospel to this man called Theophilus, and he says very clearly at the start of it, it's so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And the stories that Luke chooses to then include in his gospel, they have to be with that goal in mind. Every one of them is an intentional memory that will inform and build both Theophilus's faith and ours. And out of this initial 10-shot family album tonight is a story that is unique to Luke's gospel. And maybe you've twigged on it because it's very familiar to what we have just gone through, but it's Jesus' own dedication. 
and the prophecy of Simeon. And when we think about prophecy, it's this fascinating form of God communicating with and through human beings. And we have to be really, really careful about how we think about that. Now, Peter, when he's writing to some believers a little later on, in one of his letters in chapter 1, verse 21, he says this, Prophecy never had its origin in the human will, which means it doesn't come out of my mind or anybody else's. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I just recently moved to Donegal Day, so you just imagine when I'm going out in a paddleboard, whatever way the wind is directing that day, if I really want to go out towards the, the North Harbour, and the wind's coming against me now, I can try my best, but the wind's going to carry me back the other way. Same kind of idea that's coming on here. So the initial thought and idea, but actually the wind is carrying me to something else. And the prophecy of Simeon, my point in that is, is that it's not his own. And it's not made up by Luke either. Rather, it's the very words of God himself speaking through him by his spirit. And as I studied and I prepared this sermon again, thinking about it, I remembered something that a very wise man called David Farrell taught me once in relation to prophecy. And he said, prophecy builds our character, not a calendar. So it's not Christian fortune telling or just looking straight on to the future, but it's meant to build our character. And I want that to remain really firmly in our minds as we think about this story tonight. Because understanding this story and what Simeon actually prophesies and, say, and says, it's meant to build up that character and faith in us as we examine its insights about the Lord Jesus, his life and his destiny. And through this, we're able to build some sort of a picture of who Jesus is, why he's come into the world, why he's been born, and how the nation of Israel and then every nation is going to be changed by him coming into the world. But first, before we get into really that, I want, to think, I want us to think about the circumstances of this story, how it actually came about. I actually want to highlight the faith and the devotion of some of the characters who we actually meet in it. And from our reading, you might have noticed that, again, just like tonight, these events take place at the backdrop of Jesus' own dedication at the temple as a baby. And there were several ceremonies that each Jewish family undertook after the birth of their firstborn son. And we see some of them here in our passage. So first you've seen at the start that there was a circumcision and the naming of the child on the eighth day. And that circumcision represents belonging to that everlasting covenant that God first made with Abraham way, way back at the very, very start of, of the Bible. And then secondly, there's purification for the mother. So for 40 days after birth, Mary would have been considered ceremonially, that's very important, unclean, not actually, but ceremonially unclean. And she wouldn't have been permitted to enter the temple. So there's an appropriate sacrifice that's made following the 40 days to ensure there's ceremonial cleanliness. The events can actually happen. And that was usually a lamb, or as Mary and Joseph actually offered, given their humble circumstances, it says in the passage, a pair of doves. Or, some, or two young pigeons. And finally, there was the redemption of the firstborn. And this involved presenting the child before God at the temple a month after his birth. And the ceremony literally involved buying the child back. So they came in actually with a payment, an offering for that child, presenting before God symbolically to buy the child back. And that's a very, very important image of the Israelites being back in Egypt in that first Passover. And God literally buying back buying back the children in his own and all the firstborn children belonging to him. Now, you're probably thinking, and Luke's first readers may have been thinking, why would I want to know this as a non-Jew? Why would this be outlined to an audience? And I think what he wants to show us 
is that the timing of Mary and Joseph being at the temple was not by chance. It wasn't just something you do or you don't do, just take it or leave it kind of thing. Dedicating their son to God in these ways was not casual to them. In fact, it's a mark of their determination to honor and obey the Lord. And furthermore, the, the visit to the temple and the encounter that they have with Simeon, it's not like, here, Simeon, we'll see you down there later on. You know, come on, see that and bring it together. It's not that. It's dictated by a timetable, a really specific timetable that's outlined in the law of the Lord itself. And it's tied to Mary and Joseph, Joseph's reverence and their dedication to God and his commands. So it's not a random thing. It's not a staged event. And Simeon's arrival, that temple, is not by chance or random either. And we start to meet him here in verse 25 in our passage. And he's described as this righteous and devout man, someone who's waiting for something called the consolation of Israel. And what does that mean? We think about consolation can be slightly misleading. Because when I think about consolation, I try and put it in like football in terms like Man United are probably getting beat by Chelsea like 5-0 by now. And, you know, Bruno Fernandes puts the ball in the net and make it 5-1, like a consolation goal. Like, you know, it doesn't really matter. Just, you know, stick it in the net anyway. It's something nice. But no one's ever really going to remember or care about it. That's not what he's waiting for here. That's not what's going on here. The better word to think about is more like a redemption or like a restoration, a renewal. That's what he's really thinking about. That's what his real hope, his real aspect is in his mind. And that's really deliberate again because it's intended to give us an insight into Simeon's hopes and aspirations for Israel, for his life, and also the condition that the nation was actually in at that point. Because Israel was not having a good time. Hadn't had a good time for a very, very long time at that stage. And the reality was that the sovereignty and the spiritual state of Israel had been in this really steady decline. It was close to rock bottom at that point. And since the last recognized prophet, Malachi, had spoken about 400 years previously, Israel had been conquered and ruled successively and repressively by these different world empires. So by the Greeks and then the Seleucids, who are descendants of Alexander the Great, and now the Romans. And that period of Israel's history is bloody, and it's violent, and it's very difficult reading. And successive generations try to restore Israel, either by force or by politics, in their own way. But Israel never really recovers any of its former glory. But Simeon, he's not a political activist. He's not a maverick soldier. His idea of consolation is a spiritual idea, a hope that is squarely placed in God for redemption, real redemption and restoration. And as you read about Simeon here, you, you can't help noticing the presence and the promptings of the Holy Spirit in this story. It's something that Luke is really at pains to express to us. And the text says, the Holy Spirit was on him. And Simeon had also had this personal revelation from the Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. You just imagine living in anticipation of that every day, waking up every day. Going about streets every day, come to see your friends every day, the temple every day. I wonder if it's going to be today. I wonder if I'm going to see him today. I wonder what I wonder if it's going to come today. That excitement, that anticipation. And we see that on this very day that Simeon he's moved by the Spirit to go to the temple, and that's where he encounters Mary and Joseph with the baby Jesus. And how did he find Jesus? How did he know that they were holding in their arms the Messiah, the Savior? And again, it could only be by his revelation. He would have seen 
then daily people coming in and out of this temple, people coming to pray, people coming to make vows, people coming to give offerings, people coming to dedicate other children as well. Thousands of people, day in, day out. How on earth do you find someone in a crowd like that? Can only be by leading. Almost like a heat-seeking missile, just coming in, landing on until he finds him, face to face. And Simeon, he takes this wee boy in his arms, and he just praises God. And in these verses we read, we just see his personal joy. And this vindication he is convinced has actually now come for his life, for his nation, and for every nation. And Simeon is, is holding the salvation of the entire world in his arms. Imagine many of you, this is only a feeling I can imagine, but many in this room will experience this. Imagine like holding that child for the first time or holding the grandchild for the first time. What was that like? It must have been absolutely awesome. Imagine that must be something like Simeon is feeling, like taking him in his arms, like thinking about that word that the Holy Spirit had said to him every day and finally, oh, he's here. Oh my goodness, he's here. And although it's only a glimpse, it's only a glimpse for him, it's enough to assure him that salvation is at hand that everything that he's been living for waiting for every single day he's here it's here now and verse 32 in this we passage we read is really 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 particularly significant because it shows us that Simeon's hopes they're found in the writings of the old testament prophets we talk about prophecy in, in, in the past but his hopes are squarely found in what has been said specifically by the prophet Isaiah and listen to the echoes between what Simeon has said in this passage and what Isaiah said 700 years or so previously in Isaiah chapter 49. Writes this whole massive book, but right in the middle of it, he says this. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation will reach the ends of the earth. And this is the first time in Luke's gospel that non-Jews or Gentiles are mentioned. And if we remember that Luke's really carefully investigating and retracing the life of Jesus. And at this point he wants Theophilus and he wants us to recognize that Israel's Messiah is not just their Messiah. He's not just their Savior. But he's the Savior of everyone, of all of us, of all the nations. And that this revelation that's been spoken of in the past and it's being spoken now in the present and still being spoken about right here by me 2,000 years later, is for all of us. But there's another side to this story. And there's another aspect to this prophecy. And it's that the Jesus would not be welcomed by everyone. And if we look again at these verses in, in 33 to 35, what Simeon actually prophesies, he said, this child is destined to cause the following and the rising of many in Israel and a sign that will be spoken against so that many thoughts and hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own heart too. And the arrival of Jesus was, was not going to be like anyone ever imagined. Rather, it was going to be this paradox. Think about a paradox, it's just the truth. Doing a handstand, it kind of looks a bit weird, a bit funny, but it's right, it's kind of up the right way. And rather than rejoice, and the one who was their salvation, many would actually despise and reject Jesus. And we think way later on, all these years later on with hindsight, can we actually see, is that, was that prophecy right? And we think about Jesus' life and ministry for just a minute. And his life and ministry touched and marveled many, many people. But it also created great anger and jealousy among others. And his miracles, they healed, they fed, they even 
raised the day, but they also created real division and controversy among the people and the authorities of his day. His claims to be the Son of God, both man and God, common flesh, through worship and adoration from some people, but others lifted stones and determined that he was a blasphemer and a fraud. And the thoughts of many, many hearts in all those encounters were indeed revealed as Jesus journeyed around Israel in the times, the very short time of his ministry. And what about that sword in Mary's soul? Really dramatic image. But that's surely a hint about the end of Jesus' life, his destiny to go to the cross where he would one day suffer and die for you and for me. And it was surely an insight into the anguish and pain that she would feel by watching her son be placed upon the cross for the sins of the whole world. And why? Because that redemption we talked about, that consolation, has a cost. And the cost of our redemption was nothing less than the Son of God to lay down his life again for you and for me. One of my spiritual heroes, Professor David Gooding, he writes and he, he captures it a bit like this. He calls this prophecy the program for God's redemption. And has that those two sides. So the first one, the joy in his coming. And we've seen that in Simeon, praising God in that. But then this other aspect, which is the anguish, the pain, the agony of the cross. And Jesus was not going to be welcomed wholeheartedly by Israel as their consolation. He would be rejected and despised and opposed. And that was going to culminate in his death at the cross. That great sword that would one day go through Mary's soul. But that isn't the end of the story. Far from it. Because the paradox again in this is, is that rejection, rather than being the end of it all, that rejection is the very path that brings about this redemption. And we know that actually this redemption was real and it was complete because we know that three days later he rose again. And in life, people, they often talk about you know, the rise and fall. We all have it, rise and fall, whatever aspect we have in our life and career, whatever it may be. But with God, it's the other way around. It's a fall. And it's a rise, never to come down again. And the rejection of the crucifixion of the Messiah, it looks like another fall for the nation, another real low, but actually it's a gateway to a rising beyond their greatest expectations. Death defeated, sins forgiven, redemption and new life available from God in Jesus Christ. Everything, everything was going to change. And my hope and my prayer as we thought about some of these things tonight, is that you would be built up in your character and your faith in Jesus, because I know many, many of you in this room share that with me. And we've been thinking about Jesus' life and destiny to become our salvation and our redemption. And again, imagine the amount of baby boys being brought in and out of the temple every day, firstborn sons being dedicated to the Lord and redeemed in those symbolic ceremonies. And it's meant to act as this constant reminder to Israel of the redemption that God had first brought in that Passover and the redemption, that ultimate redemption that he was going to bring again. And it also reminded them the truth that the cost of redemption is the price of a substitute and that they are meant to live, as Simeon demonstrates to us, in faith and anticipation of that ultimate rescue and redemption arriving again. Jesus came as that rescuer, that redeemer, that substitute and his coming assures our salvation. His death on the cross would seal our redemption. And his resurrection proves it's for real. But what about you? What do you hope for?
And what do you live for? And our hope as Christians can only be found in Jesus. No one else, nothing else. And many of you again have come here tonight knowing that hope and praying, longing for these little ones who have come to the front one by one to grow up and to live their lives knowing that as well. That real deep desire in many of us to see that. But perhaps there's others of you in this room who who don't have that hope. Or maybe over the passage of time, as Lee shared a little bit of earlier on, maybe it's been battered, maybe it's been lost, maybe it's been hurt, or it's been faded by other things, by other people. Proverbs verse 10, chapter 10, verse 7 is one of my favorites. It's a real reminder to me. It says, hopes placed in mortals die with them, and all their promise of power comes to nothing. Everything else that you try to put your hope in, in this world, will ultimately die. It will end. It will fade. It's reality. But our hope in Jesus Christ cannot die because he has literally defeated death. He rose again. He lives forever. And the hope we have in him, again, it's not political, it's not by force, it's not our own way, but it's this spiritual renewal, renewal that's real and it's evident to everyone by the way that we live our lives in response to him, in response to that. It's one that begins here and now by our faith and trust in him that carries us through everything this life has to throw at us and into eternity with him where we will be with him and where we see him face to face. And that gets me excited. What does that hope look like? And the here and now, how do we demonstrate that to these wee ones who are brought to the front, who don't know anything yet, but who we hope will? How do we want them to grow up? Like Mary and Joseph, the challenge, I think, for us is to be faithful and to live in reverence of the Lord, knowing his commands and his ways and doing them, being examples in them. And like Simeon, we have to seek the assurance of the Lord and the revelation of what he said and take encouragement in the faith of those like him and like those we've seen who live and die waiting and trusting in the promises of God to be fulfilled. And crucially in these days, we must be sensitive to the presence and the prompting and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Our hope as Christians can't be political or social revival, but it's only found in Jesus and the redemption and renewal of all creation that will be completed in him one day. We have to replicate the faith and devotion of those we've looked at tonight in seeking God and being his hands and feet to the world around us. And even when things are dark and difficult, and they have been in these days and these last number of years and before that, we must continue to seek him and trust him. He knows the times and the circumstances. And our job is to trust him and to be faithful to him now, here and now, in the generation and the people around us. Simeon was convinced that his salvation would come and he did. He only caught a glimpse of him, of that salvation, but it was enough to be, for him to be absolutely convinced that it was completed, that it would be done. And he stood on one side of the cross, one side of history. And we stand way, way further on. We have a much more complete revelation of how things were happening and how they changed than he could ever have possibly imagined or dreamed of. We know he died for us. We know that he was buried for us. And we know that on the third day that he rose to life again. The question is, what will you do now in response to that? How will you choose to live your life and your lives for these little ones who we've had here at the front this evening? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the hope that we find in you. 
We thank you, Jesus, for the redemption, a complete redemption that is possible in you, that we have, have found in you. We thank you that we know you as Savior and Lord. We thank you that you have come uh, as a baby, um, that you grew up um, like us, that you went to the cross for us, you died for each one of us. And thank you, Jesus, that wasn't uh, the end of the story. Thank you that three days later you rose again. And thank you, Lord, that you have ascended now, you're glorified. And help us, Lord, I pray, in the lives and the examples that we want to set, Lord, for our family, for these little ones who are dedicated to you tonight, Lord. Help us, Lord, to magnify you in all of that. We thank you for each one of the, the, the little girls and boys who have been up here tonight, Lord, and we just pray over them again and commit them to you especially, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would set them apart for your kingdom and for your glory, Lord, that we grow up knowing you and living for you and knowing the joy and the peace and the love that comes with walking with you day and daily. Lord, help each of us, Lord, I pray, to put our hope squarely in you. And Lord, help us, Lord, to know your presence, to know the filling of your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we go about our daily lives, Lord, in our families, in our workplaces, and wherever you will have us and wherever we'll go. We thank you for the revelation in your word, Lord. We thank you uh, for those who have spoken in the past, who encourage us in the present, and who send us forward into the future, Lord. We thank and praise you for everything you've given and done for us, Lord. And we just commit the rest of our night to you and ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.